Leave the free market, keep government out of things. In an economy that you're pretending is an economy like that, an economics 101 economy, is simply just a license for plunder. Yeah. And that is exactly what we have. Sir Angus is both of the orthodoxy and a critic of the orthodoxy, right? You know, like you, Nick, an insider. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> definitely an insider. Yeah, hardcore. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. One of the great pleasures of this job, Nick, and that means both working with you and uh, especially doing this podcast is, man, we get to talk to such interesting, smart people. Yes. Uh, it is It is an incredible privilege to read a book by a Nobel laureate and then to say, hey, let's come on the podcast and talk about your book. No, it's fantastic. And it is a great gift. And wrapped up in that gift wrapper today, if I may say so, if I, if I, if I may torture that metaphor, um, <laughs> yep. is uh, Sir Angus Deaton is joining us, who's a renowned economist, uh, an author known for his work in fields like poverty, inequality, and health. He is one of the grand poobahs of the economic world. He's the 2015 Nobel Prize laureate and currently a senior scholar and the Dwight D. Eisenhower Professor of Economics and International Affairs Emeritus at Princeton University. He's written a billion books, but uh, among them, The Great Escape, uh, Health, Wealth, and the Origins of Inequality, Deaths of Despair, and the Future of Capitalism, 2020, and his newest book. Right, which we should point out, he, he wrote with his wife, Anne Case. That's right. And, and I think he's written most of his recent things with Anne Case, and his newest book, Economics in America, an immigrant economist explores the land of inequality, which just came out. But it would be so interesting to talk to Angus Goldie because the book is part memoir, mm -hmm. you know, part biography, part criticism of the profession. And interestingly, you know, Sir Angus is both of the orthodoxy and a critic of the orthodoxy, right? Like he, you know... Like you, Nick, an insider. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> definitely an insider. Yeah, hardcore. Um, uh -huh. But I, I suppose in his later years, and I, I'm not sure if he would agree with this characterization, sort of broken with the orthodoxy and been more of an outsider and a critic of the problems that economics has and the problems in the world that economics has created. It's worth noting that the last two chapters of his book uh, are uh, did economics break the economy and is the fa is economic failure a failure of economics so <laughs> you know <laughs> he you know he definitely is wrestling with these questions yeah if, if if he's a proponent of the orthodoxy he's not selling it well yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> so with that let's let's talk to Sir Angus Deaton. My name is Angus Deaton. 
I'm a longtime professor at Princeton, now emeritus, which means retired. I'm the author most recently of Economics in America, an immigrant economist explores the land of inequality. But I'm also the author with Anne Case of three years ago of Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, and before that, a book called The Great Escape. Fabulous. Tell us about your new book and what inspired you to write it. Well, some of the pieces were occasional pieces that I'd written over the years, and it occurred to me and to Princeton Press that they might, with a suitable amount of work, um, be turned into sort of a coherent book. So it's partly memoir, um, sort of about me, but also memoirs of other economists that I've met over the last 40 years. And through that, I wanted to give people a view of what it was like to be an economist, um, what economists do, you know, whether they're really all corrupt or whether some of them are actually nice. I wanted to talk about some good economics, some bad economics. Towards the end, I think I want to talk a little bit about how my profession, I think, has gone a little bit off, maybe more than a little bit off the rails. And that a lot of the problems that we face today, and especially the polarization and a lot of very angry, very disillusioned people, has something, not everything, but something to do with the way we practice and interpret economics. Yeah, so you call America the land of inequality. It wasn't always this way. There is a su suspicious correspondence between when you came to the United States and when it started to get more unequal, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> I think it had become a little bit before that. Yeah. You know, I, 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 <laughs> the hinged date of around 1970. Yeah. And also, one, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that the inequality you're referring to there, which is sort of rising income and wealth inequality, is yeah. extremely important. But it's not the only sort of inequality that's really important. I mean, most Americans, most people who talk about these things are certainly equivalent and certainly familiar um, with racial inequalities of a horrendous and long-lasting sort. But the other inequalities that I've been much concerned about is between people who do and do not have a four-year college degree and the terrible outcomes that are besetting the two-thirds of the population without a college degree. Right. Uh, we, we talked with uh, Michael Sandel a few weeks back about that, and uh, I know you quote him in the book and you go into this in, in great detail. This, this is really the, as you point out, and it started in the mid-1970s, this is really the big sort of shift that not only has uh, the stagnant and declining wages of non-college educated, well, men particularly, but it's led not just to rising inequality, uh, economic inequality, but also to this uh, degradation of the American political system. Yes. And also for a lot of people, it's a degradation of their communities. Yeah. It's a degradation of power, which they used to have, perhaps most notably through unions, which hardly exist anymore. And more serious, perhaps most seriously of all, I'm not sure I would put it up there, but some would, declining life expectancy mm -hmm. yes. in a way that's just incredibly unusual. Yeah, that, that part is particularly shocking. But can you speak a little bit about the good 
the bad and the ugly of economics over the last, over the span of your career. You know, you, you have touched so many things. You've been awarded a Nobel Prize. You've been at the center of the orthodoxy and a critic of it. If you could, you know, ex- just expand on that what, as you reflect on your profession and your career. What does it make you think and feel? Confused, I think. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Me too. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah. It's quite hard to be at the center of the mainstream and do all these things I've done, like being president of the American Economic Association, for instance. Though right. to be fair to the AEA, it's always been very diverse. So, you know, this was an association that had both Milton Friedman and Ken Galbraith as presidents. So it, it's never taken a very narrow view. Of things, but come back to the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, I th- I think the good is it's in some ways become much broader. You know, when I came here permanently in 1983, it was becoming more and more mathematical. It was all concerned with general equilibrium theory, or with macro, or with micro theory, and there were really very few people in top universities in economics department working on things like poverty or inequality, let alone race. So people do work on these things now. So there's been a big broadening of topics. We're also very good compared perhaps with some other social sciences at working with data. We can sort of count (laughs) like accountants. (laughs) And, you know, as the world has become more data intensive, that has certainly opened up lots of avenues which have been explored by some very good people and with very interesting results. The bad and the ugly, maybe I can run those two together. I've never been quite sure what the distinction is. (laughs) Is, you know, that economics has been very narrow in its focus compared with its origins. So, you know, If you read Adam Smith or Karl Marx or Ricardo or John Stuart Mill or even Keynes, there's a very broad set of issues, including philosophy, some psychology, but a serious contemplation of the human condition in all its strengths and weaknesses and in all its dimensions. Whereas a lot of economics over the last 20 or 30 years has become obsessed with efficiency with the sort of allocation of scarce resources among competing ends to use Lionel Robbins's famous definition. And actually, I think a lot of economists today, if you ask them what economists do, they would say that. Whereas, you know, other economists have had much broader statements. I mean, Pigou talked about being motivated by withered minds and mean streets, meaning doing something about poverty. Keynes talked about efficiency social justice and liberty and trying to reconcile those two things. We've sort of given up on the second two of those and seem to focus almost entirely on efficiency. And that means economists have come out against lots of things that are really important to ordinary people, you know, including minimum wages, for instance. We've become very in favor of unrestricted free trade and free transfers of capital around the world. We've become very pro-immigration and have not really been thinking very hard about whether there might be flaws in that case or whether 
the people who worry about it may have a legitimate reason to worry about it. And so I think we've taken over the political and economic discourse in a way that has missed a lot of really important things and thus contributed to the polarization and to, in some sense, the disenfranchisement of working people in America. Why do you think that that happened? Because it's certainly a transformation that has taken place over half a century, more than more. Is it something in the broader culture or is it something, some pathology unique to economics? Because it really seems to function differently than a lot of other sciences or alleged sciences. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, there clearly are very broad social forces going on. So, you know, people talk about um, neoliberalism and, you know, the, the sort of eventual retrenchment of the New Deal as we move back to something that looked much more like the Gilded Age with both the legal system and the economic system and looking like that and the redistribution of power away from labor and towards capital, which has swung back and forward several times in American history. So these broad social forces were going on. I think economics picked up on that, but also contributed to it. You know, the mathematization of economics didn't help. Also, the fact when you think of the huge increase in fractions going to college, and everybody who gets a four-year degree has to take an economics course somewhere along the way, and those economics 101 courses, you know, are pretty brutal things, and I think tend to conform to the story I've been telling about focusing on efficiency and not much else. That raises an important question because we have we have confronted other economists before, and they have said, oh, it's not economics. It's, you know, everybody knows that the story they tell in the Econ 101 textbook is, you know, a vast simplification. And the problem is not enough people have gone on to take higher level economics to know that what they were taught in that first course isn't broadly applicable and isn't necessarily true. They're just useful fictions, as as Krugman has said. Is our problem, and I say our, Nick and I, are, is our problem with economics or is it merely with introductory economics textbooks? So why are the economics? I, I, I think this idea, this is a useful simplification, I just don't buy at all. I mean, can you imagine what Marx's um, Econ 101 would have looked like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think that Economics 101 has done a huge amount of damage. I mean, and there's, you know, a group in London um, that's putting together an online free textbook, which takes very different attitudes. And actually, I'm encouraged that quite a number of my Princeton colleagues are using that text. Yeah, that's Sam Bowles' effort, right? Well, it's partly Sam Bowles and yeah. other people at University College yeah. London and so on. So, you know, it's a lot of people, but yes, an, an attempt to take a very different view of these things. So I think the idea is a usual simplification. If you, I mean, the problem is most of these people are going to only do one course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then they go away and go to law school and they turn into the Federalist Society or something. You know, I mean, that's not really a good way to do it. So, so Angus, you know, one of the things just really surprises us is the the intensity of 
resistance to empirical evidence that contravenes some of these ideas. Uh, it, famously, I mean, in your book, you note some uh, some of the uh, people who attacked uh, Alan Kruger and Andrew Card when they first did that first uh, empirical study. James Buchanan's famous quote in the Wall Street Journal about them being camp-following whores and all that stuff. Where do you think that anger comes from? Like, why did it make them so angry that the empirical evidence seemed to suggest that raising wages didn't kill jobs? Well, I, I tell part of that story. I, I think, incidentally, I may be the one who was responsible for finding that Buchanan quote. It's in a tiny little addendum in, in buried deep in the Wall Street Journal somewhere. So it's not, you know, something that's very obvious. And I was sort of appalled by it at the time. First of all, it's money. You know, so a lot of the opposition was coming from the fast food industry. And what's it called? The Employment Practices Institute or something? Which Right. We, we call it the, of, the other EPI. The other. The evil EPI. EPI. The evil EPI. <laughs> the evil eye. I like that. And, you know, it's not obvious when you go to the website where the money is coming from. But, of course, it is obvious that it's coming from the yeah. fast food industry. But that's not so surprising, right, after all. <laughs> You know, you can expect businesses to defend themselves. It actually is somewhat of a confirmation of their original case, because the original case only really makes sense if this money is not. <laughs> the truth is that it's coming out of profits, not yes. costing unemployment, right? Right. Someone told me the other day that Buchanan is a textbook in which he even says that, <laughs> that if there's monopsony in the fast food market, you know, then increasing wages will actually just cut profits and doesn't cut employment at all, at least over a modest range. Anyway, so you, it's not a surprise that people vested interests defend themselves. What is a little more disturbing is how many economists are happy to line up behind them. And That's what I'm after. And, you know, I don't have much to say about that. I think there are a lot of people out there who are, you know, corruptible if you call it that, but they're certainly prepared to adopt pleasing positions. <laughs> there was yeah. a professor at the London School of Economics who had a notice on his door saying, pleasing positions adopted for cash. <laughs> <laughs> but surely that's not why most economists entered the profession. No, that's true. But that doesn't mean they're not susceptible to the blandishments that come their way. You know, and if you ask them about this, they'll say things like, I've never said anything that I felt the slightest bit uncomfortable with, some of which traces back to the way they think about economics. And, you know, it's clear that most economists, well, I'm not going to, I don't want to go there, but, you know, money is very tempting. To some extent, I came to America because I got a much higher salary here, much higher standard of living. And, you know, that turned out to be true. So I'm not trying to sell myself as a model of virtue. And, yeah. you know, something that your listeners might want to know is this is not a book saying Angus Deaton was right and all these other bad guys were wrong. <laughs> you know, it's very much a book of how we were all wrong or we all right. overweighted some things and not enough others. Yeah, right. So you you consider yourself a mainstream economist? <laughs> it's not clear that other people do. <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, I think so. But I mean, I it may be that in recent years, maybe I'm just getting old and senile, or you know, maybe I'm a little further distance. Another thing that's really important is I grew up in a very different place, and I right. talk a little bit about that in the book. You know, where I was, my first job was in Cambridge in England, a very lowly job as a research assistant. And, you know, that could not be further away from Chicago libertarian economics than anywhere. I mean, that is sort of the ultimate opposite in some sense. Um, those people regarded, you know, Cambridge mass economics as the enemy, let alone you know, people in Chicago who were pushing libertarian ideas. So they were very left-wing. Um, John Robinson was sort of a Maoist. Um, there were a lot of Trotskyists there and so on. A lot of them were actively out organizing communist unions. So it was a very different sort of place from any sort of American department. And I think those ideas and those feelings have stayed with me. And they're always really there ready to try and interpret the world I'm living in today. So, so Angus, I'm not asking a rhetorical question. I'm asking a serious question. So, we, you know, this podcast is dedicated to telling a new story about economics and is in many ways an attack on what we see as the orthodoxy, uh, a bunch of ideas that look to us as a protection racket for the rich, right? That you know, the idea that the, the economy, for example, is a prey to optimal equilibrium couldn't be a more powerful idea to, to protect the status quo. Absolutely. <laughs> because in that, in that worldview, anything you do to mess with it decreases the, you know, efficiency and harms everybody. The idea that price equals value, that people are paid their marginal product, that GDP equals welfare, all these ideas, while internally consistent and mathematically elegant, when taken together and taken seriously and interpreted into, into policy, can't but create any outcome other than making rich people richer and everybody else poor. Do you, do you substantially agree with that? Substantially. Yeah. And so my question is, what advice would you give us to be the most useful critics of the system in order to advance a better world? Like, you know, if you were our boss, what would you tell us to do? That, that's too hard a question. <laughs> I've never been very good at getting other people to do things I wanted them to do. And I mean, I think that in some ways has helped me because I often work alone and think alone. But to come back to that, I mean, I was reading a book by Andrew Koppelman the other day about libertarianism, which I liked. And it's sort of liber a critique of libertarianism from a socialist, from a left-wing perspective. And he very clearly, he has a lovely phrase, which I can't quite quote here, but I, I can't quite remember precisely, but it's exactly what you say. I mean, if libertarian rhetoric, which is, you know, leave the free market, keep government out of things, in an economy that you're pretending is an economy like that, an economics 101 economy, is simply just a license for plunder. Yeah. And that is exactly what we have. And I think, you know, I, I've tried for years to track it down, but I remember reading John Robinson saying, 
you know, American neoclassical economics. I guess the term neoliberal didn't exist then, but she yeah. said American neoclassical economics is an apologia for American capitalism. And I wish I could find where she wrote that, but I've so far not been able to. And even ChatGPT doesn't seem to be able to find it. Oh, interesting. Well, I, you know, I substantially agree. And, and they're a feedback loop, right? I mean, American capitalism didn't always view the only purpose of the corporation to be to increase corporate profits and for shareholders, right? That's a relatively new invention from the 70s, by the way, from economists, right? Well, or not. I mean, there were economists. I mean, it's, it's chickens and eggs again, right? I yeah. Mean, the, 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 there were very rich people funding those economists yes. to spread oh, the yeah. message and, you know, yeah. the story of the Montparlant Society and all that sort of stuff, yeah. um, you know, as part of it. And, and those people, you know, so I, I think Milton Friedman really believed what he thought. And, you know, he was happy to take money to help push those ideas and the businessmen yeah. who funded him. But, you know, there have been cycles of this, too. I mean, there, there have been earlier periods in American history where corporations were different. And there, were no, there wasn't much corporations in the early founding days when, as you said, there was a large middle class and not very much inequality of any kind. In your book, you, you describe, um, you define both uh, conservative and progressive mainstream economists virtually identically. Uh, with the exception that progressives are more willing to make the big trade-off for welfare purposes. I'm curious, on the heterodox side, outside of the mainstream, where do you think the uh, greatest uh, opportunities are in you know, the evolutionary camp, complexity? Where, where do Just rethinking the things. I'm glad you picked that up, incidentally, because I wrote that very carefully, and I hoped someone would notice it. Oh, oh <laughs> we say the exact same thing, so of course I picked up on it. <laughs> We've been saying that about Democrats, that they're just as bad as Republicans. They're just willing to make, make that big trade-off, but they think no, it's there. They didn't used to be. Um, I know. There, there's been a big change. That is the big change that's happened is within the Democratic Party that's sort of Correct. moved away from a party of working class people, yeah. um, largely supported by unions, to become a, a party of Econ 101. <laughs> and, and these educated elites who've all done Econ 101. Tri we know, call it tr trickle-down light. Trickle-down <laughs> Okay. So that, that, I think, is becoming pretty widely understood. I'm encouraged by young people in the profession who are thinking in a very different direction. One of the good things about economics is it's very open. So you don't have to wait until you're 60 years old to get a good job in a powerful institution. And people are changing. And there are important people in important universities who are challenging the orthodoxy. So give me, I saw you had Darren Asimoglu on the show. Yeah. So Duran is, is goring one of the sacred cows of economics, which is that all chemical change is good, right? That's very important work, and he's a very important figure, and that will really help. And I think other people are changing too. And think, I mean, Danny Lordrick's work on trade, you know, and how the so-called gains for trade are tiny compared with the enormous amount of disruptions they've done. People have identified, you know, Charlie Schultz as one of the great apostles of efficiency. 
And, you know, that is another ox that's being pretty seriously gored. So I think I'm, you know, at my age, I'm 78 years old. I'm not about to change the field. But, I mean, I can perhaps exert some influence as an elder. But I think there are young people picking these things up. Yeah, for sure. Do, do you think it can be fixed or... Is it something that the orthodoxy needs to be torn down and replaced? Well, I don't think it needs to be torn down. It just needs to be ignored. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, golly. Well, you know, economics is, if you talk to some of the philosophers of science, some of whom I've worked with who are interested in economics, they will point out the fact that economics has multiple models, many of which contradict one another. Mm-hmm. And so it's like you go into a well-stocked store in which there are many models there and you can pick and choose which ones you want to ch- look at, the ones you want to use for a particular problem. And the fact that they're mutually inconsistent with one another is not really that important provided you're choosing correctly. And so I think that the fact that these things will change um, really does make a difference. I mean, after all, I mean, you know, Greg Mankiw taught 101 at Harvard or EC1 or whatever it's, EC10, I guess is what it's called. EC10, yeah. And then they decided the students protested to the point, and now they're, they, it's um, Jason Furman and... Um, it's like one inch they, better. You know, yeah, well, and using Mankiw's book. Better. It's a lot better. Um, it may not be where you and I would choose to make it go, but it's a lot better than it was. And, you know, that process, I think, will, you know, that's progress. And sometimes progress is pretty incremental. Yeah. So so I want a definitive answer on the titles of the final two chapters of the book, which are, Did Economists Break the Economy? And Is Economic Failure a Failure of Economics? Yes or no? (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, they don't have sole responsibility for breaking the economy. Right. And that's the sort of story that runs through the book, right? It's a combination of bad economics who were prepared and a lot of money. And when you put those two things together, you can do a lot of harm. Yeah. If you had, we always ask uh, in our interviews a a benevolent dictator question. I guess one form of it would be, if you had to do your career over again, would you do anything differently? I, I don't know. That's not a benevolent dictator question. And, you know, when you, one of the things you tell your children is these, this, that decision you're about to make is not as important as you think it is, because once you're on the other side of it, you'll have no idea what it would have been like had you done something different. Yeah. So, you know, I've had a good time. I've learned a lot and, you know, I've had a lot of recognition for what I do and I wouldn't undo that. But I hope that maybe the next generation as I've been talking about, will, you know, help move the profession in a somewhat different direction. So if you were benevolent... Let's get to, yeah, the actual benevolent dictator question. If you were a benevolent dictator and had controls over the levers of policy, knowing what you know about economics... And knowing what you know about economics in America, the title of your book... Yeah, what would you do? I'd abolish all the laws that make it hard to unionize. Okay. So so countervailing power. Yes. Let's have some countervailing power back again. I think that would be the single most important change that we could have. 
and we'd have to do it soon because otherwise, you know, I think it's in your title. They're going to come for us with pitchfork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay. It's a good answer. Are you encouraged by what you're seeing with the UAW strikes and the attitudes of the UAW? I am. And I'm, you know, I'm encouraged. We all like to see our work having some effect. And the work that Anne and I have done on Deaths of Despair mm-hmm. has, I think, moved people. So that, yes. you know, Janet Yellen has been a huge supporter of our work since it first yeah. came out and talks about it frequently. I think, you know, that brings us um, great pleasure. Yeah. Well, and the Biden administration has broken with the last 40 years of neoliberal economic policy in a really profound way. And, you know, I think you can take some credit for that. Well, thank you. Um, I wasn't going to say that, but (laughs) I'm very encouraged by that. The question, of course, is just whether it's... um, you know, green shoots that are about to be sunk under an avalanche of money, or whether it really will rekindle a new future, and let's hope for the latter. And our final question is, why do you do this work? <laughs> I don't know. You probably asked my therapist that. I mean, I grew up pretty poor. We worried about money a lot until quite late in life, um, even after I was by myself. So I've always had an understanding of that end of things, I think. I was never desperately poor, but this sense of worrying about money all the time is something that's very, very bad for people. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand how that came about, and I wanted to understand, you know, what makes people tick. And so a lot of the early work I did, which is, you know, very mathematical, very mainstream and so on, was still was about that. And, you know, the two people who've had the most influence on me were Richard Stone, who I talk about in the book. And he was one of the great measurers of the 20th century. You know, he was interested in collecting data, describing what was going on. And the other was Amartya Sen, who I've known almost as long. And, you know, has always had that sort of moral compass as part of why we do economics. Yeah, definitely one of our heroes. Should be. I'm glad to hear. Well, Angus, uh, we can't thank you, thank you enough for coming on our show. We're huge f- fans of your work. We're just really thrilled to get to talk to you. And we wish you all the best in your future endeavors. We think you still will change the profession. We give you more credit for that. So. Well, I mean, I, I think the thing that worries us most about the work we're doing now is this sense that many people seem to believe there's no real crisis at all. And, uh, you know, it's just an opioid crisis or we just got our numbers wrong. And, um, you know, basically America's pre-sound. And they're jumping up and down celebrating how well the American economy is doing relative to Europe while people are dying in droves. Yeah, yeah. Well, sir, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Yeah, Goldie, I was really hoping that Angus would give us some really wise advice about how to be. <laughs> it was a stretch, an over, uh, overreach in order to get some more clarity about what we do and how we do it. I think. You know, it is a but, ho- but he did. Yeah, he 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 simplified it, which is 
countervailing power. Yeah. We need more of that. Yeah. And and that's that's where unions come in. Yeah. I just have to ask you, so if you were Angus and I asked you that question, would you would, would your answer have been the same? I no, probably not, largely because it takes me much longer to drill down to core principles. I tried to get there. Yeah. But when I think about his answer, what he's essentially saying is that when you you create the conditions for countervailing power, it works organically yeah. in the market. As a first principle, he's either right or damn near right, correct? Right. The thing <laughs> is, it's really simple to do. Yeah. Like, yeah. like leg- it's not it's not complicated. Yeah. What you do is you make it a hell of a lot easier for workers to organize. You support organized labor. You take away all the restrictions that we have built out over the years. And then you allow organized labor. You allow workers to organize to build their own power to countervail the power of employers and you get good things from that. You don't have to overthink it. We've talked about this a lot, Nick, that what we have in our economy is a grotesque power imbalance that is inherent to markets operating unfettered. Yeah. And and you can go all the way back to Adam Smith and see that observation. And it 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 runs through classical economics and it actually runs through much of what became neoclassical economics. You see it in Galbraith, you see it in Keynes, and there are different ways of enabling and exercising countervailing power, but the simplest and the one with the best uh, historical support is organized labor. You see it throughout history that conditions only improved when workers were allowed to organize. You know, the capitalism was not good for the vast majority of people until workers were able to organize, which, by the way, was illegal for the first century of capitalism. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I, I think, yeah, you, you you were hoping and I was hoping for a, a more detailed prescription. But I think what, again, the wisdom of that answer is that he understands. And if you read the book, you, you yeah. understand how how complicated the politics is and how much money there is on the side of capital uh capital and so that's not surprising again <laughs> right. a lot of capital uh, on the side so, of capital right and so this is a a very simple solution it's not the only thing you need to do but it would go a a long way and again we we brought it up near the end you see it with the UAW strikes and by the way how important just uh, political leadership is how roundly criticized President Biden was for uh, allegedly violating norms by uh, joining striking auto workers yeah. on the picket line. And that's all he did Yeah, was show up there and side with them. Yeah, That's all he did. And a few weeks later, you see the, the strike being settled. Yes. First Ford, then Stellantis, now GM with these big victories for the UAW. And to the UAW leadership's credit, they're not stopping there because they understand if they get these big contract concessions out of the big three, you're just going to, and that's all you do, and you don't use that as a step towards uh, organizing Daimler uh, Benz and uh, 
Toyota and Honda and Kia and everybody else building cars here, then you're just going to shift production to yeah. uh, the uh, the so-called um, right-to-work states and to non-unionized plants. So this is one step. You get this contract, and now you go to striking. You go to auto workers elsewhere and say you could have this too. Yeah. Let's organize and join together. And that's what's important. And it's. It's big what's happening now. And he's right. These may just be green shoots that are smothered in the the collapse of our democracy (laughs) that could come in the next couple of years. But hopefully they're not. Yeah. Yeah. I've got one other takeaway from this. And that is, you know, to point out in the book, by the way, he... His first chapter starts with the minimum wage, and he, so he talks about the fifteen-dollar <laughs> wage fight in Seattle. And he, he, you know, we've repeated that before. The 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 Buchanan quote, which is one of my favorite quotes of all time. Buchanan, by the way, also a Nobel laureate, which uh, is a cautionary tale about uh, <laughs> Nobel laureates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Half the half the Nobel laureates in economics were total shitbags. <laughs> right. So. But it, it's really important when it comes to the credibility of mainstream macroeconomics in particular and how mathematized it's become. When Cardin Kruger uh, did that initial study on uh, minimum wage differences in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, this difference in different study, and found that, uh, in fact, uh, employment increased faster in New Jersey, where they ma- raised the minimum wage than it did in Pennsylvania, and they were roundly criticized. And you could understand back then in the 90s where it's just core to orthodox theory that if you raise the price of something, people will buy less of it. So if you raise the minimum wage, employers will hire fewer people. And they were the first to really have some study. And you know how these things work. There's methodological issues all the time, not just in economics, but in all the social sciences and and even the hard sciences. But it's been decades. It's been decades. And the math has become more sophisticated. The data has become more detailed. And decade after decade, this finding is confirmed. And yet, decades later, only about half of economists accept these results. There's all this empirical data and all of this good science, all of this good math. And these mainstream economists who, you know, when I criticize their work, I'm often told, well, you just don't understand the math, which is true. I don't understand the math. I'll admit that. I I don't understand the math. I can't do it. But they understand the math that's telling them they're wrong. And only half of economists will accept these results. And I think that speaks very poorly to the profession. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, distinguishes it from, a, if I may say so, a real science in many ways, where there are controversies in physics at the bleeding edge of uh, string theory and (laughs) cosmology and so on and so forth. But the simplest propositions like force equals mass times acceleration, not controversial. (laughs) Right. And the other other thing about science is it's not a science if it can't be proven wrong. (laughs) That's a religion. Yeah. Well, how cool to have Angus on, and it's a cool book, and it's in the show notes. It's in the show notes again, Economics in America, an Immigrant Economist Explores the Land of Inequality. I mentioned to Angus before we started recording, I listened to the audiobook, and 
I admit this, I listen, most of the books I read are audio books. It's the only way I can get through all this stuff. And he reads it himself. Job well done, but also something I hadn't heard in one of these books before. There's outtakes, which are, provide a lot of insight. And uh, it's just kind of fun to, to hear the, how an audio book is made, uh, different from the actual just writing it, the reading of it. So highly recommend it. Uh, links are in the show notes. You can buy this book at your local independent bookstore or the, the nameless giant monopolist, if that is what is most convenient for you. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.